Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. I'm grateful to be here because it's always exciting to like delve into and explore like the wisdom and the power and the healing that, that the Spirit has given us, that we've inherited in our bodies, and that's in the scriptures. And so I just really want to dive into that this morning. And I really want to focus on power in particular. It's kind of something I want to just explore in light of the scriptures and Jesus and the practices of New City. And uh, I always like to ask questions. I ask lots of questions. Um, I had a mentor one time, who, uh, one of my artist mentors, who said that when art says it's how it's all the answers, it's not artist propaganda. And so that always stuck with me. So I always try to, particularly through my art, but through theology and whatever I'm sharing, I like to ask lots of questions. So I just want to invite you all to explore some questions with me today, um, because I think questions challenge us to examine what is and open us, opens up new possibilities to explore what can be. And I love how Jesus responded to a question with a question. Right. And that's super annoying and frustrating because like we want the answers. Like I get frustrated when people do that. I'm like, come on, just tell me the answer. Like, but but Jesus questions oftentimes moves us deeper into relationship with God and to each other. And so that's what he did here um, when we look at what happened um, with our with our story with the Good Samaritan. So if we can take a look at that, that scripture again. Um, and I think that that Jesus might have. Uh, can we look at the slide with the Yeah, sorry, with the scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The questions that that people were asking in this passage. I think that Jesus kind of learned that, that uh, way of questioning people. When he was just a little boy, if, if some of you are familiar with the story, when Jesus was just a child, his parents were looking for him. Like, oh, no, where did Jesus go? And they found him just chilling in the temple. He was asking all these questions of the teachers and the religious leaders of the day. And I think that's where he really learned that even as a child, he's being like cultivated and mentored and shaped into the leader that he would become. Um, so when we look at the, the questions here, um, we have this guy who's, who's an expert of the law, right, talking to Jesus. And he should know some of the stuff already that he's asking. You would think he would know some of this stuff. But he's saying, Jesus, teacher, he said, what must I do to get eternal life, an abundant, flourishing life, right? And Jesus replies with another question. What's, you, you know the law. Like, what's written in the law? How do you interpret it? So he kind of presses him to further interrogate himself, right? And what he's really asking, because Jesus kind of can read the subtext. He was really good at reading, reading the subtext of whoever he was in a conversation with. And so he's like, hey, I, I know I peeped the energy. I know you're trying to come at me. What do you think? Like, let's dig a little bit deeper here. And if the, if the man had good intent, if he was really trying to learn, I think right there after this conversation when he says, he explains what the law actually says, right? He knows that he knows. And he says it. If he had good intent and they had this exchange, I think it would have been, all right, I got you, Jesus. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm going to go and do that, just like Jesus told him to, right? But it says, we go further down in the scriptures, it says that the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he was trying to flex on Jesus or anybody in there. I don't know what he, he had, some type, of, some, some type of way he was feeling about Jesus. And, and he, he kept asking him and pressing him, like, who is my neighbor? as if to prove Jesus wrong and prove himself right, the way that he was acting, his behavioral patterns, right? But then Jesus' response, I love the way Jesus really opens us up with this story, a story about the Good Samaritan. Oftentimes we call this story the Good Samaritan. And, and really what I want to explore as we, as we pause here on this story, double tap on a little bit, is, is like why is the Samaritan good and why is this such an important and significant story um, in this particular context? 
And so um, let's, let's open this up a little bit. And uh, if we go to the next slide with the Samaritan, I think I have one that we might, oh, maybe I, we didn't get in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. So what's good about the Samaritan? So many of us are familiar with this story, but if, if we're not, you know, it's, it's the story of a, of a traveler who's going through this valley between Jerusalem and Jericho. And this was like a really treacherous valley. I had, I had a really uh, a bad reputation for things happening there. Uh, people would get killed there. They, there was names for like Blood Valley or Blood Pass. And so things that happened there weren't, weren't you know, things that, that happened in this story weren't uncommon to happen in that place. But this traveler, he gets, gets robbed and uh, he gets his, his clothes stripped. He's beaten and he's left half dead alongside of the road. And then first, we have a priest who comes by and sees this and goes along the other side. A Levite comes by and just walks and goes on the other side, and they're both trying to avoid the man. But then uh, there's a Samaritan who seems to have the most power in this story. Jesus gives this man the most power in the story as he's talking about, about him. And what happens is the, the Samaritan you know, sees the man, helps him, bandages his wounds, takes him to a place where he can stay, gives, gives them money to take care of him, and he gives them extra money, two days' work, to further take care of the man. And so what, what's so significant about this is that if we look at the, the cultural context of this story, we have Jesus, a Jewish person, talking to a largely Jewish audience, and the Jews hated Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated Jews because of a clash of, of history and culture. Like, sure, the, the Jews and Samaritans, they had some commonalities. They had a, a shared common ancestor. Uh, they both believed in one God, had similar religious leadership, and they based their faith on similar text. But because of a clash of politics and religion, they had a fundamental difference in the observance of the laws, and they were incredibly divisive and polarized. And as I often like to ask, I don't know if any of us have seen this before, if we can ever relate to like a clash over culture and politics, right? I don't know, yeah. But um, Jesus here, what he does is, is a radical rehumanization and a radical re-empowering of the Samaritan. In this story, the Samaritan is someone who has access to the things needed to even help this person in the first place. That shows a sign of power, but then, then the greatest power is in the way in which he treated this person, right? That's where Jesus really, really leans in, is saying, how did he treat this man? Go and do likewise. That's what he talks about. And Dr. King actually also explored this passage Strangely enough, like ironically enough, in his last message before he died, his speech, um, I've been to the mountaintop, he talks about the Good Samaritan, he talks about this passage, and this is what he says. He says, Jesus ended up saying, this was the good man. This was the great man because he had the capacity to, protect, to project the I into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now you know we use our imagination to a great deal to try and determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. At times we say they were busy going to church meetings and ecclesiastical gatherings, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law. The one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem or down to Jericho, but rather to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root 
rather than to get bogged down with an individual effort. This is Dr. King. But then he says, he further leans in, he says, but I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's impossible that these men, is it possible that these men were afraid? He talks about how that's the dangerous road in the days that Jesus came, it became known as the bloody pass. And you know, it's possible that the priests and Levites looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. Can anybody relate to that? People think you're faking in your time of need. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them for a quick and easy seizure. So people fearing when you're in need and vulnerable, marginalized, people fearing you, thinking that you're trying to pull one over on them, bring them down. And so the first question that the Levi asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan, King says, came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And that's why King says that this man is good. And I want to push that even a little bit further. And the question that I want to ask is what will happen to us when we realize that we're all interconnected? It's not just what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to us if we don't develop the capacity and the compassion to, to address these, these issues and these problems that, that happen in our lives, right? So King, the reason why he was... He was Speaking on this message, at the time, he had joined um, some sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee for the Poor People's Campaign. And they were doing some organizing around uh, economic boycotts. Um, and so he was advocating uh, boycotting white goods as a means of nonviolent protest um, for the sanitation workers. Because they were um, during like unfair treatment, poor working conditions. And he said that individual, individually blacks lived in economic unjust and inequitable conditions, but together, he said that we are an economic powerhouse, and they should use this power to support, um, to stop the support for racist groups and instead empower black businesses. Um, and so that's the whole reason why King was like really leaning into this, really opening this up for his last speech, talking about I've been to the mountaintop. He was working with the Poor People's Campaign. And I was, as I was looking at this, at, at, his, at his speech, and I, like, I've, I've always loved the work of King. Um, I've always studied his speeches. I listen to his speeches on YouTube, like randomly. I'm kind of a geek like that. I don't know if anybody, maybe somebody else does that too. I don't know, I just like listening to his speeches. And I, I would buy, actually, um, the CDs of his speeches and put them in my car. Just really inspirational. As a speaker, as a poet, um, he's a poet in his own right, and the way he was able to use words and, and to mobilize people uh, was really inspiring to me. Um, but what, what really piqued my interest as I began to delve deeper into his story was how was he shaped? Uh, what shaped King's consciousness of collective liberation? Like, like, I want to take it back to his early years. So if we can go to the next slide here. And this is one of the questions I really wanted to, to dive deeper into it was, how was MLK shaped and formed? Because sometimes I think we look at these great leaders and we forget that they didn't become that way in and of themselves, right? No, no person got to where we are just by ourselves. Uh, Dr. Cornell West talks about, show me somebody who like, gave birth to themselves, who was here by themselves, right? And we talk about this concept of Ubuntu a lot, I am because we are interconnectedness. So, so who is King's? community that shaped him, that birthed him, that, that allowed him to, to flourish into who he was, into his potential, into his power. Um, and so, you know, looking at his childhood, you know, he had a normal childhood. He took piano lessons 
from, from his mom. He sang in church choir. He went to movies, played sports like football and baseball. Um, young Martin was a paper boy, and he wanted to be a fireman when he grew up. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he, he was born uh, in his family home on January 15th, 1929 in Atlanta, Georgia. And he was with his grandparents, with his mom and dad, and two siblings. And he had this, this normal life. I think sometimes, I, I can only speak for myself, we kind of lionize or ide uh, like idealize some of these figures, right? But to humanize him and to remember that, that he's a normal person, just like any of us, and just root that and ground that in, it, in his humanity, I think can be really helpful. And so he had a normal childhood. However, he was brought up in an era of segregation. Oftentimes we talk about you know, what that meant for, for the differences in the conditions in which he lived. But one thing I want to focus on is the fact that he was actually raised around all black folks. right? There, throughout his childhood and teenage years up until him going to school, his consciousness and what he learned and practiced was shaped by like a liberative type of thinking. Right? And one example of this uh, in the story, maybe some of you have heard the story before, but um, when he was just a kid, he and his father went to a shoe shop to get new shoes. And, and there was nobody in the store. Um, it was just King and his father and the white worker there. And his father went to go get the shoes. But they're like, sir, I can't serve you right now. You need to sit in the back, and then I'll come serve you. And his father looks around. He's like, ain't nobody here. He probably didn't say it like that. But he's like, you know, I'm the only one here. Um, this seat is just fine, and you can serve me right now, or else we're going to leave. And the person didn't serve them. However, his father grabbed King's hand and then walked out of there and he said, you know what, as long as I live, I'm never going to accept this system. He demanded his respect and demanded his human dignity. I think that moment right there might have been one of many that planted the seed in Dr. King's, Dr. King's mind and his heart and in his being to let him know, let him see what it looks like to reclaim your power, right, even in that small instance, right? And so I see how this seed was cultivated throughout his life. I mean, um, he skipped ninth and 12th grade, and, and he like scored early in the college interest exams. And in his junior year, when he was 15 years old, he went straight from Booker T. Washington High School to Morehouse College. When he was 15 years old, y'all, I wasn't on that when I was 15. I don't know what y'all were doing when you were 15. I wasn't trying to go to college. I wasn't even thinking about college. I was like trying to figure out what girl I was trying to holler at or something. I don't even know. Like, let's just be real. Yeah, and so like, yeah, when he's 15 years old, that's the type of like mindset he had, what, type, what the community was pouring into him, right, what was shaping him, going to Morehouse College. When he was 19, he was ordained as a Baptist minister from Crowsworth Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania. He was appointed as the assistant pastor in Ebenezer Baptist Church at a very young age, 19 years old. Um, but really what I want to lean in here is, is some of the people who were influencing him. Um, Howard Thurman, how many of y'all are familiar with Howard Thurman? A black theologian, mystic, prophet, really shaped his consciousness as well. Um, and, and Langston Hughes, some people don't realize this, he came up in the same era as Langston Hughes. And some folks, some researchers and scholars even suggest that some of the I Have a Dream speech was influenced by Langston Hughes, because Langston Hughes throughout his work talked largely about dreams and what that meant for him. And King was in conversation with some of that. And even when he was giving the, his famous I Have a Dream speech, it was Mahala Jackson if you listen to the recordings in the back, you can hear Mahala Jackson saying, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And prior to that, Dr. King was on this whole trajectory talking about socioeconomic justice, right, and how America has, has, has a bad check that we ain't going to try to cash because y'all need to live up to the promises that you made for all people to have liberation and justice. That's what King was on. And then when Mahalia Jackson said, tell him about the dream, he started to freestyle. 
And that, that famous part that a lot of people know about, I have a dream, that was Dr. King, like moving in the spirit and just freestyling and improv improvising off of what he felt in his body, in his spirit, right? I think that's really powerful. But, but Mahalia Jackson was a big influence on him too, singer, artist, all these names, right? I could, I could list off people. I think it's important to recognize that like Dr. King's not in the vacuum. He's just not just one individual who did this. He was part of a collective movement for justice and for healing for human dignity. I mean, he was part of the, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, CLC, when he marched on Washington for jobs and freedom. There was others around him. He even moved to Chicago in 66 to bring attention to the impoverished conditions. And he wanted to be closer to the people who were actually experiencing those impoverished conditions. I think that says something about that proximity to the margins, about that proximity to where you know people who are having these problems, we have all we need to, to solve the problems that we have. Right, but how do we organize that? How do we build collective power together? And King knew that and understood that. So that's why he moved closer to the margins, affirming that humanity and building power in that radical rehumanization, radical re-empowering of people. So I think that Jesus is, is the one who not only shows us how to do this, but he's the one who actually radically rehumanizes us yeah. and re-empowers us yeah. when we need it. Because I know when I'm left like my own devices, like I can shrink, I can shrivel into like selfishness, mm. I can shrivel into feeling hopeless, mm. like I don't have what it takes, I don't have what I need, and, and I can get, like I know people who oftentimes know me as this really hopeful person, but the times that I am hopeful is when I'm connected to community, right. and when I can see the God in you and the God within me, like, and how that is powerful, right? right. I think that's why, why Jesus, uh, you know, showed, showed us what it's really all about, what power is really all about. Because Jesus, again and again, he was challenging and shifting the paradigm of power, politically, religiously, and spiritually. And he pushed that boundary in a way, in such a way that in the Gospel of Luke, um, they called him a drunkard and a glutton, because he was eating with sinners. He was hanging out with, with people who were shamed, right? With the people on the margins who nobody liked, right? He was kicking it with them all the time. And I think that shows true power. Mm. Jesus really embodied that and taught us how to do that. Because the empire thinks that power is about dominance. All right. Thinks that power is about control, right? And Jesus showed that it's about empowering others and walking alongside others in solidarity, right? And there, there's a model that I learned um, when I was in seminary. I first came across this cycle of gospel living by Eric Law. And, and we, we talk about this in, in so many different ways, I think, in New City as well. Like, I think you might even uh, touched on it earlier, a step up and step down, right? We kind of talk about that, right? Yeah. But what this is is that we, we always have to consider the, the power dynamics that are in play in any given situation. Whether or not we, we name it, whether or not we speak it, it's always these power dynamics are always in play. There's people in the room who have more power than others. Um, and so taking this in consideration, this cycle of gospel living shows the cycle of Christ's life, right? Where there's a place where the entry for people with power is to give up power and to choose the cross in the ways that Jesus gave up his power. They call that kenosis, the self-emptying, the giving of that power. And then the cross, death, and the powerless. And that's when the power is given to those who are empowered, who don't have that as much power, right? And so what I want to invite you all to do is like question and, and invite you in this question of where are you at any given time? Because this is going to look different in different contexts, right? Because I think about all the parts of myself, all the parts of my identity 
as like a, a cis, hetero, man, black man who's had education um, and, and you know, all these different things have certain powers and privileges. The empire that we live in, if we're going to name it, the empire that we live in centers white bodies and centers male bodies and centers abled bodies and centers heterosexual bodies and, and you know we, we can go down the list right and and when we're in the place of centering how do we yield some of that power yield that space and allow more space for those who don't have that right and with Jesus I think Jesus is really the one who who does the radical re-empowering who does the the, the radical rehumanization, because it's not so much that we don't have power already, it's like what is blocking our access to that power, right? And that's really what it's about. Because I, I love this quote by Audre Lorde, uh, black, uh, black author who said, oh, we, not, not yet, we can go in a second, in a second, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, and she says that the quickest way people give up their power is by thinking we don't have any. You know, and, and so I want us to just look deeper and realize that even when we don't see how, the ways that we have power, even when we don't feel that we have power, God is still in the midst, right? Jesus is still calling us to be radically rehumanized, radically re-empowered, and to see where, where are those, those power blockages? What's, what's disabling our access to that power? And I think when we, especially when we come to communities like New City, that's when we can really open up and see how powerful we are. Because I've seen so many different, I love, I love how many um, spaces that New City has cultivated for us to access that power and to live more fully into ourselves, into that flourishing. Because when I see, uh, see uh, the blockages of power, I really see that as a constriction and as, as a, a shrinking of ourselves. And when we are living our full selves and our authentic selves as a flourishing and an openness that we experience in our bodies, that we experience in the world. But, but things of New City that I can think of are like the Life Together groups, you have racial healing classes. I know Rachel Martin's doing uh, stuff about white body supremacy. I mean, we could go on and on, but there's all these things, all these ways that you can connect to these communities of practice, because it's really what it's about. It's about practicing that, like doing it over and over again, like, the, like you breathe, right? One breath at a time. I don't like to say one step at a time, because that's, that feels ableist. I like to say one breath at a time, right? We can build this power and, and open up to be our, our, our fullest and best selves. So we can take it to this, this slide right here. And this is what I like to think about. We, we are not all powerful, but we are all powerful. Each and every one of us has, has, a, has a purpose, has a reason, has something that we can offer, some, some sense of power. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, but I think when we come together, that's when it really is actualized. And I love this quote by Dr. King. He says, those who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war. And so many times his, his legacy kind of gets shrunken down. Again, when we talk about power, like it tries to, people try to disempower his legacy by making it just about his I Have a Dream speech, just about integration. He wasn't fighting just for integration. As a matter of fact, he's quoted by saying he fears that he had integrated his people into a burning building, to a burning house. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that's the reality of it. He was fighting for, for freedom. He was fighting for liberation, for healing, for the flourishing of black folks and all people, not just integration. He was, he was, that was a method to get to the flourishing, to get to the empowerment, right? And this right here is especially prevalent in a time where we have warmongering running rampant. Those who love peace must learn to organize as effectively as those who love war. The power is there. 
but how are we organizing it? How are we, how are we listening to the call of Jesus to, to radically rehumanize us, to radically re-empower us, and so that we can do that for others who haven't experienced that as well, right? And that's really what it's about. And I know it's, it's through Jesus that, that I, I see and experience how power always rises, right, from the grassroots, rises within us. And so the hope and the prayer is that we can live into this because we need that organizing, we need that community, we need Jesus to remind us that even when, we don't, when we're not all powerful, Jesus is the source of all power, right? And he allows us to also be powerful too. So all power to the people because Jesus gives all people the power. That's all we have today. Amen. God bless y'all.